But welcome those of you who are right in front of me and welcome to those of you joining us by live stream. We are making our way through Mark's gospel, as you know, but I want the attention right now of all of our little theologians. I know that's odd. We call our children little theologians. They're thinking about God they cannot do otherwise. So little theologians, as I preach, I want you to draw for me a picture of a carburetor. So, right, that's easy. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, it, a carburetor is a part of a car's engine. It feeds the engine its fuel. That should be enough. Work on that. Because this passage is about trying to draw Jesus but not knowing Jesus. Trying to fill in all the gaps as if we know everything about Jesus when we don't. We haven't stopped to uh, look at what God's Word tells us about Jesus. We've not actually listened to Jesus. So you don't know what a carburetor is, but try and draw one anyway, because much of our lives is trying to pretend we know who Jesus is and what he's about, and yet never seeking him in God's word. Our passage this morning is from Mark chapter 8, and we will begin at verse 31. Before we read, would you join me in prayer? Father, be with us. As we study your word, as we ponder it, would you make it clear to us by your Holy Spirit? And would you use me as your servant toward that end? Thank you for being with us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And this is the word of our Lord. I really struggled with an appropriate illustration to begin what I believe Mark wants us to see in this passage. And I struggled because all the illustrations, they seemed rather uh, silly, simplistic. And here I'm uh, grabbing for some intellectually deep illustration to prepare you for what Mark has for us. And the illustration I came up with really is 
nothing beyond going to a restaurant and placing an order and not getting what you want. It comes back wrong. What does that feel like? Uh, owing that you're not the kind of person that just lets it go, but that you actually uh, address the matter, uh, you're certainly disappointed. But this kind of escalates, doesn't it, this feeling of disappointment when you don't get what you asked for, when the items are big-ticket items, a house or a car or a remodeling project. You give very specific instructions. You think about every detail. You plan every detail. And on top of that, you pay a deposit. And when it's introduced to you, Not only is it not exactly what you want, it's almost exactly what you don't want. Not a little bit off, but a lot. And maybe it's so bad that a lawyer gets a phone call. You know that feeling, don't you? Well, on the one hand, I especially feel for people who are like this. Uh, Really, really particular people tend to be like this. Everything that they order seems to come back wrong. I especially feel for those people because I myself am particularly particular. And so I feel for people like that. But on the other hand, I don't feel for people who don't get what they order. Because I have to remind myself that Much of life is exactly like that. You don't get exactly what you want. Illness and grief and not getting that dream job and relationships that go sour. No one orders these things. It's not what you select on a menu. But it happens all the time. And what we see here in this passage is that Peter, he has ordered something or someone. And he's ordered a particular kind of Christ. And he doesn't get the Christ that he ordered. Isn't that frustrating? You know, Peter's the first one in Mark's gospel to actually use the title Christ for Jesus. And that, that, that pricks our attention, doesn't it, when we, when we see that he called him Christ. He must know everything about Christ. But what this passage this morning tells us is that the kind of Christ that Peter has ordered is not the kind of Christ that he gets. Praise be to God for that. We know that Peter gets a better Christ. But for now, what Mark wants us to see is how badly Peter wants something, someone else. And if truth be told, in our ordinary walk as Christians, we know that we need to study the life and ministry of Jesus. We know that we need to pray to him, to grow in him. And we want to do this because we love him oh so very much. But what this passage reminds us is that We need to do these things not merely for our affection for Jesus, but because if we don't, we will make Jesus into our own image. In this passage, what Mark tells us is that Jesus himself defines himself. Only Jesus can define himself. That's the first half. The second half is that Jesus actually has the authority to define us. Well, Jesus 
defines himself. We begin in verse 31 uh, by Jesus' beginning. And he began to teach, Mark tells us in verse 31. In verse 27, you go back a little bit, they're actually walking, and they're walking to this unique place. They're walking to a, a place uh, called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it's a place of Roman su- uh, uh, succeeding and uh, the Jews failing. That's where they're going to. And in verse 31, Jesus beginning to teach actually feels pretty immediate. It's almost as if Jesus, uh, right on the heels of Peter professing that he is Christ, as they're walking to, walking to this place of Roman success and Jewish failure, uh, as they're walking, Jesus, he seems to be prompted, and he's prompted to, well, he's prompted to speak very plainly about the future. It could be that he's prompted by the readiness of the disciples. Uh, Peter, after all, used the word Christ. My students are ready, and so Jesus is prompted perhaps by the readiness of the disciples, but more likely he's simply prompted by God. He's the Son of God, values the will of God, and Jesus, as he begins to teach, is actually practicing verse 33. Look at verse 33. Peter, he's setting his mind on the things of man. Jesus doesn't do that. And so Jesus is prompted by God the Father because he set his mind on the things of God and now he's going to teach. And the content of that teaching is actually described in verse 32. It's interesting, uh, the the teaching itself uh, would be uh, very surprising and very offensive. But what Mark wants us to know in verse 32 is that he said all of this plainly boldly. Jesus, he's, he's, he's trying to be uh, very clearly understood. No parables. He's not speaking in a way to uh, expose dull hearts, heavy ears, blind eyes. He's done this in the past, fulfilling Isaiah 6. He's speaking clearly, using very common words. But what he says is surprising. He's speaking about these four future events, and they sound like they're they're near future events. And these events are the kinds of events that are actually undesirable. Certainly the first three are very undesirable. Suffering, rejection, killed. And not only is he speaking in a surprising way about future events that seem to be uh, coming rather quickly, uh, he's speaking about things not that he will do, but things will happen to him. Notice that Jesus is passive. These are things that are, hap- are going to happen to me. And this is really surprising. But what Mark wants, to see, wants us to see is it's not just surprising. It's really, really offensive. The disciples hear this and they don't like it. And Jesus, uh, here as he teaches, he calls himself not Christ, but he calls himself the Son of Man. But he is using terminology that came from the prophets during the exile. When everything had been lost, when Jerusalem is a pile of rubble and the people of Jerusalem are cast out living in in exile, this phrase, Son of Man, referred to the one who would come. We see this throughout in uh, Ezekiel, though it often refers to Ezekiel, to be sure. But it shows up in Daniel 7 that the Son of Man is the chosen one of God who was given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom over all peoples and nations and languages, a kingdom that would never be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. And so Jesus, he accepts the title Christ. He gives himself the name Son of Man, uh, the great king, even as they're walking to a place of Jewish failure. 
Now, the surprise is that these events are events that must happen. Look at verse 31. These events are necessary. They're unavoidable. And these things, not the things that the Son of Man does, but experiences that happen to the Son of Man, they're necessary, but they're awful. He must suffer. And the word that Jesus uses is one of a deep personal experience. And he must be rejected. Not just fail, but actually be tested and found lacking and be rejected on that basis. In fact, what Jesus says is that the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the entire religious establishment is going to test Jesus and find him lacking and he'll be rejected. But in, in the ears of most Jews, these are the best people on the planet. These are the best of humanity, and they're going to measure Jesus and find him lacking and he'll be rejected. And furthermore, he must be killed. Those are horrible. And in fact, those are offensive, and that's chiefly uh, what uh, Peter is offended by. Uh, at the very end, in verse 31, when Jesus says, after three days, it's also necessary that I must rise again. Well, he's using very common terminology. You could not misunderstand him. To rise up, that's simply to stand up, to get out of bed. And he says, I'm going to do it again. So after I've been killed, I'm going to do that standing up thing again. Well... Maybe if the disciples had trimmed back their uh, offense censors and listened, they would understand that there is great doctrine here, that this is the man who has been teaching them these past two, two and a half years. Uh, This is a man who only speaks truth. This is a man who performs miracles. Why? Why would he say these things? Because they're true. They'll happen. And yet even still, if they could get their mind's eye to see that the one who has always spoken truth is still speaking truth here, even though that's the case, these are dreadful events and a mysterious event. They must happen, and Jesus is passive. But they don't want to hear it. And what Mark wants us to hear is how offended Peter in particular is. Look at the latter half of verse 32. Do you see there that Peter, he takes Jesus aside? What do you think about that? How tender Peter is. How sweethearted he is taking Jesus. Almost as if he doesn't want Jesus to be embarrassed. And he pulls him aside. We parent this way, don't we? Peter, he's being a good dad. You pull your kid aside. You make sure that they're not going to be embarrassed. You don't want to make a scene. Peter's not going to make a scene here. And what does he do? Well, Mark couldn't be more clear. And Peter couldn't be more clear because Mark is getting his information from Peter. And it's almost as if Peter is saying to Mark, don't dial any of this back. I pompously pulled my Lord and King aside to rebuke him. Now, we're not told exactly why Peter does this. It could be that Jesus is absolutely and utterly ruining the morale of the disciples. No doubt he's doing that. But there's more to it. This is not the Jesus whom Peter ordered. And he's fairly sure this is not the Jesus whom the disciples ordered either. 
They don't want to follow someone who is going to suffer. They want someone who's going to be pampered and treated like a king. They don't want to follow someone who's going to be rejected. They want to follow someone who is going to be popular like a really good king. And they don't want to follow someone who's going to be killed. They want to follow someone who has an army and the power to protect himself and us like a king. And his resurrection if that's what the Son of Man means, should be utterly unnecessary. This entire project of Peter is actually setting his mind on man. This is setting his mind on man. But really, this is Peter setting his mind on a particular man, on himself. That's what Peter is doing. And this is graphic But we actually, as followers of Jesus Christ, we do this all the time. We actually define Jesus as if he lacks definition. And we correct him. We remind him of the tidiness that his life ought to represent and his work ought to affect. We live as if we have redeemed ourselves We believe the job of Jesus is to keep the cosmos running while I tend to the details. We live as if our own morals in that moment, forgetting the past, that our own morals are sufficient in his eyes. We live as if growth and development in Christ Jesus is something that we do merely at our own pace, mostly optional, mostly online, and he always grades on a curve. We expect him to keep the major problems of my life at bay, give me not too much money, but enough, and we expect him to be on call if things get super dicey but only then. Well, I don't know what this man is like. Is he like the president? Is he like a really good employer? What's this person like? It may be that he's the kind of person we want him to be, and that's all there is to it. We've constructed a world in which that's the Jesus that we need. And Peter, Peter is showing our hearts to us. Well, Peter, he intends his rebuke to actually be quiet, but Jesus, look what he does. He actually turns and he looks at the 11 other disciples, and he makes his rebuke of Peter very, very loud. Get behind me, Satan. This is, Satan, Satan's a great accuser. This is the one who tested Jesus, and Jesus, he looks at Peter, and he calls Peter uh, the great accuser among his followers. And he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But what he really means is you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of Peter. Now, Jesus has the authority to define himself. And Peter doesn't like that authority and takes initiative to define him. But the next part of this passage is about Jesus making us after his own image. Jesus, he he takes all of this very seriously. If you look at verse 30, uh, back uh, from last week, he, he charges them not to tell anyone about him. Why do you think he said that now? Don't let Peter talk about Jesus. Peter's got everything wrong. And so he tells his disciples to be quiet. Don't say a thing. 
because Peter needs to learn and the disciples need to learn who Jesus is. And in verse 34, Jesus calls the entire crowd and he asks them to to come alongside his disciples. And he's serious about rebuking Peter, so serious that Peter's going to do it privately, Jesus is going to do it publicly. And if they're still on their way to Caesarea Philippi, this audience itself is already challenging. There'd be some Jews that are following them, walking with them on their way to wherever Jesus is going. But in this audience, there'd be an awful lot of Gentiles. These are people who would be brand new to the ministry of Jesus. And the reason this audience is important is because I want to tell you that the words of Jesus beginning at verse 34 are just the worst crusade in the world. The exact opposite of revival. This is not the kind of sermon we would preach to the kind of audience Jesus has. It's a great opportunity to tell people who he is. It's a terrible revival. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, deny yourself. Submit your view of the world to my view of the world. Submit your sense of identity to who I am because your sense of identity is not the measure of all things. So when Peter was rebuking Jesus, what was Peter doing? Peter was being authentic. Peter was speaking out of his identity. Peter's being true to himself. Jesus, you ought not do this. Can't talk this way. Let's not allow this to be your future. Jesus says, deny yourself. I'm not the measure of your identity. Your identity is the measure of me. And he says, take up your cross. You know, here on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, that's not an offensive uh, phrase at all. But in this audience, to say, take up your cross is to prepare for defeat. Prepare for defeat. Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and killed. And you're going to be part of that collateral damage. Take up your cross as well. It's a horrible way to spark a revival. And then Jesus says, only after you deny yourself and only after you take up your cross should you follow me. This is so painful to hear. But Jesus, he knows us. He knows that we'll do anything to save not just our lives, but to save our very souls. The word life isn't in this passage. It's the word soul. And he knows we'll do everything in our power to save our own soul. Peter's definition of who Jesus is, Peter has created some crazy world in which he doesn't need a redeemer. But Peter, he'll die rapidly for that world. More rapidly than he'll die for the world that Jesus pictures. But Jesus, he knows this about us. He knows that we've constructed a life in which we hope to gain the whole world. He knows that we have constructed a worldview of making sense of things around us. He knows that we have this inner working system of ours that describes to us what is valuable and worth chasing after and what is worthless and worth keeping away. We create this system. We live in this system. Every human being does it. It's a powerful system. When I think of uh, Alice through the looking glass, Alice, that little girl, goes through the mirror, but on the other side of the mirror, she knows everything is wacky. She gets it. That's what makes Alice through the looking glass so funny. But the Bible tells us that we create systems like that and live in those systems, but we really believe them. We really believe them. We believe this is how the world works, this is how my identity works, and this is how Jesus works. 
But Christianity is nothing less than setting all of this aside. Christianity teaches you that you need a Savior, whether you think you need a Savior or not. Christianity teaches you that your soul is in grave danger. Christianity teaches you that this life that you have created without Jesus is the kind of life that's going to vanish, and it's going to vanish tragically. You will have done everything in your power to save your soul, and all you will have done is forfeited it. You can wait and see. At Jesus, he promises to come in the glory of his Father, publicly, loudly, with his holy angels. That's here in this passage, and you can wait to see. Wait to see. Maybe you're right and Jesus is wrong. But if you live in a little system that you've created that says you don't need a redeemer, and you wait and see if your world holds up to the very end, you'll see that your world is wrong, and it'll be too late. But let's not forget who this passage is addressed to. It's actually addressed to us as Christians. And Jesus is correcting not just the crowds, but he's correcting the disciples. He's correcting us, those who profess faith in Jesus. And with that in mind, I think there's three applications that we ought to take from this passage. Give deep thought first to an application that involves you admitting that you do this, Christian. Even as you profess faith in Jesus, even as you interact and live in a life of the church, you actually do this. And I do this. I create a world in which Jesus can't see me. He's elsewhere. And the first application is that we need to confess that we do this. That we custom order Jesus like we custom order cabinets. And if he doesn't do exactly what we want, we keep defining him for our own world. So the first application for a Christian is to confess that we do this. Look at this in your heart. Search this out. Are you trying to make Jesus after your own image? The second thing is humility. Because we say that we want to study Jesus and we want to pray to him and we want to live and experience him in the life of the church and that we want to do all that for love. And you do love Jesus, Christian. But know also that you need to do that with a sense of humility because you know yourself and you know that if you don't seek Jesus in the word and in the life of the church, you're going to fill in those gaps with some other kind of Jesus. And what that means is it means that our pursuit of Christ has to be the kind of pursuit that is filled with humility because we know if there's gaps, I'm going to fill them. Jesus, forgive me of that. That's the confession. But as we go forward, go forward in humility knowing that about yourself. And a third application behind confession and humility is this. It's hope. Let's understand and admit, Christian, that a lot of life doesn't unfold as we plan. That there are parts of our identity and our deepest longings that are actually dissatisfied. Let's call this out. Let's notice these things. Let's also uh, be, uh, be transparent about the fact that we are uncertain about our futures. We're not sure what's going to happen in this present age with my life, with my family, with my relationships, with my job. But our hope isn't in these earthly things. Our hope is in the kingdom of God coming with power. That's the encouragement of this passage our hope is not for everything in this world to work out according to our plan. Our hope is that Jesus, the great restorer, would come and flatten our plan once and for all. Confession, humility, hope. This passage, Peter being offended at Jesus, the one whom he's called the Christ, this passage is for you, Christian. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. 
we ask that we would confess that we make Jesus after our own image. We ask that you, by your spirit, would fill us humility, that we don't love him as much as we think we do, and that we need to follow him because we're just dangerous without him. And then would you give us hope that even as our plan doesn't unfold the way we think, our hope is in the plan of our Jesus. In his name, amen.